Welcome to Labor Intensive, a show about the labor movement in Canada. I am your host, Jody Tomchishin. On today's show, we have an interview with Tanita Doma and Chris Ramsarup, activists with Justice for Migrant Workers. But first, the news. Breaking right now, I am sick, but it will not stop me. The show must go on. But I do apologize if my voice sounds rough or if uh, my editing does not remove all the coughs in the interview segment. But yes, I am sick, but, uh, you know, so be it. Life will go on. In labor news, however, following up on last week's show, the International Longshore Workers Union, the ILWU, on the west coast of Canada, they have in fact gone on strike. It is hard to tell how negotiations are going, but it is worth reporting that yesterday, according to the ILWU, their employer, British Columbia Maritime Employment Association, walked away, even with the mediator present. The apparent disagreement is over whose jurisdiction certain maintenance work falls under. If you are curious with how this breaks down, I recommend going back and listening to our previous episode. Either way, I will stay on top of this story until the ILWU gets a decent agreement. Solidarity with the 7,000 plus workers who are now on strike across British Columbia. Hydro Ottawa employees, represented by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW Local 636, initiated a strike this week after 40 days of Hydro Ottawa failing to show up for negotiations. IBEW represents close to 400 workers at Hydro Ottawa. They are on strike due to safety concerns that are not being addressed by the company. Health benefits, but also fair compensation, are also on the table. Hydro Ottawa has frozen some workers' wages, while, of course, the CEOs are given bonuses. The Ontario Public Service Employees Union, OPSU, has filed a lawsuit against former union executives who allegedly mismanaged the union's money, which OPSU claims became evident after an internal audit. The previous executive members, which includes former leader Smokey Thomas, who represented OPSU for 14 years, have denied these allegations. Now, I, I was wondering to myself whether I should cover this or whether I shouldn't, but I think it is something that we should cover because having fair representation uh, includes having a union that doesn't uh, exploit its members like the employer uh, exploits their employees. So I will stay on top of this and I hope that this all gets worked out. And if there was some mismanagement going on, I, I hope OPSU is fairly compensated. Lastly, in international news, 340,000 UPS workers might be on strike soon as labor negotiations have broke down this week between UPS and the Teamsters. Both sides have accused each other for walking away from the table. Their contract expires July 31st, and there are no scheduled talks between now and then. Of course, things might change. The Teamster members want wages that match the cost of living, which I happen to think is fair, and a strike would mean another disruption to the supply chain, which of course will affect things like inflation. So it's worth staying on top of this one. If you have any news you would like to share about your own union or local bargaining updates or strike support, whatever, feel free to email laborintensivepod at gmail.com and I will include it on next week's show. For the interview, I sat down with Tanita Doma and Chris Ramsarup who are activists with Justice for Migrant Workers. 
We discuss recent organizing by migrant rights groups to demand status for all migrant workers. Given the way migrant work is structured in Canada, these workers are often exploited with little recourse since these workers are afraid of being deported. The recent mobilizing for status comes as the federal liberal government announced they would be discussing this issue. Of course, discussions don't mean that they will be doing anything, and it also means they will be listening to migrant worker employers who have way more resources and more opportunities to talk with MPs. We also discuss the history of the labor movement and its relationship with migrant workers, and if possible, how to improve that relationship and build some solidarity. For more information on justice for migrant workers, you can visit their website, harvestingfreedom.org, or follow them in social media at J4MW on Twitter and Harvesting Freedom on Instagram. And with that, here is my interview with Tanita and Chris. Hi, I'm joined with Tanita Doma and Chris Ramsarup of Justice for Migrant Workers. Hello, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm, it's, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> I've, I've been getting over a, a cold, but uh, hopefully that won't interrupt the interview uh, too much. But I, I asked both of you here today because there were recent demonstrations by uh, migrant activists across the country regarding the open work permit for vulnerable workers and also uh, pushing for a permanent residence status for immigrants, uh, what is being called regularization. And this show is a union podcast, but migrant workers, I think, I I don't know all the details, so maybe you can help fill me in on this side of it too. They don't have as many rights as permanent residents or citizens in this country, and so probably don't have the ability to unionize, or at least that picture might be legally complicated. And so I kind of want to start off broad for maybe uh, some of my audience who might not know the background about migrant workers. But if if we could start broad, like what type of jobs are migrant workers doing? And what are those working conditions like given their migrant status? So migrant workers work in virtually every industry in Canada, pretty much, uh, especially frontline work. And um, you'll often hear migrant farm workers um, or advocates in this area talking about the the four Ds, the three Ds, sorry, dirty, dangerous, difficult conditions. Um, We work with migrant farm workers specifically, so migrant agricultural workers in Ontario and across Canada um, when we hear from them. And the nature of the program that allows migrant workers to come to Canada is that they come under a closed work permit, which means they are tied to one specific employer and they are not allowed to work for any other employer besides that employer. And they also have several conditions that are attached to their being in Canada. For example, they can't go to school. um, They can only work in certain types of jobs and those, those types of things. And what we've seen and what we've heard from workers is that because the program only allows for closed work permits, um, workers who come here are completely at the mercy of their employer. So whether or not their employer is a good or a bad employer, you would often hear those good or bad terms being used. It doesn't really matter because if an employer 
wants to, or um, even if they don't want to, they have the ability to do whatever they want to workers without facing um, many much pushback at all from the federal government, even though there are things in place. So when workers speak up about the conditions that they're working and living under, uh, it's very easy for employers to simply terminate them and send them home. And the typical deportation proceedings you might hear about for immigrants don't exist for migrant farm workers, or um, I don't want to speak about all migrant workers, but we know for sure migrant farm workers do not um, have like the typical going to CBSA, going through the removal proceedings that you would hear about. So it's very easy to invisibilize migrant workers, uh, migrant farm workers in Canada, because the way that the program operates is not very clear. Um, it's a federal program, but it's administered in partnership with provincial and municipal governments. So there's a lot of jurisdictional football, um, that's what we call it, that happens when we bring up concerns and when workers bring up concerns because they say, oh, for example, the federal government could say that's a provincial responsibility if we're talking about employment rights or um, that's a, a, a municipal responsibility if we're talking about housing. And so it's a very unclear <laughs> program in terms of um, the the way that the laws are administered on uh, on migrant workers. But at the same time, the federal government, provincial governments and municipal governments have been hearing about the issues that workers have been raising for decades and have had numerous opportunities to address them and they simply have not. So I'm going to actually go back a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. I want to answer the first question about labor. And uh, if we go back to the um, important radical and socialist scholar, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Du Bois spoke uh, critically important about uh, in the United States, the, uh, the, race, the race line, right? And looking at race and racism as, as the Achilles heel of the United States. I think for the continent, both for the United States and Canada, not only do we have the Achilles heel of the labor movement dealing with race, but also the immigration line. And um, unions have grappled and have not uh, successfully addressed and dealt with uh, immigration and immigrant rights right from the um, 1860s, 1870s to today. Um, we've always looked at the other, the so-called foreign other, whether it's workers of color, racialized workers, whether it's immigrants, whether it's undocumented workers, as a threat to our, our, our nationhood, as a threat to our well-being as a society, and a threat to the white working class. So it's it's for us, and I think part of our work has been trying to dismantle that that uh, that idea that migrant workers are a threat to our society, and for us to try to think about and you know going back to the Wobblies, for instance, the industrial workers of the world, and for us to think of um, all workers as members of our working class, and it's important to uplift all workers through organizing collectively. Uh, we've seen three streams of of labor analysis. Um, in, in understanding the role of uh, the so-called foreign other. And this is going back right from the, uh, the emergence of, 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 of labor unionism. One is to try to exclude, um, and you know, the Vancouver and District Labor Council was very important through their, ad their advocacy for the Chinese Exclusion Act um, at the turn of the last century. Uh, and, and saying that, you know, the racialized Asians overall, both South and East Asians should not be um, members of our unions because they're a threat to our uh, health and safety laws, to our well-being of the society. So that, the, the virtual exclusion. Uh, we've seen throughout the history um, 
both the United States and Canada trying to organize the so-called foreign other, but with the idea of trying to eradicate them. So we would see, for instance, trying to organize a collective agreement to organize guest workers. Uh, that's another term for temporary foreign workers. But the idea is to try to eliminate the temporary foreign workers uh, from the bargaining unit. So you organize to eliminate. Um, our approach, and I think many other um, uh, you know, activists and radicals, is to think about how do we try to build a multiracial working class um, and how do we build um, a society where our, our immigration laws are not used to divide workers? So we have to understand that the first and foremost, that the temporary foreign worker program, because workers are tied, um, as Tanita said, uh, on a restrictive immigration work permit, um, employers use this as a divide and rule tactic to try to weaken workplace organizing and workplace unity. Uh, they pit workers, uh, Mexican workers against uh, Guatemalan workers, against J Jamaican, against Trinidadian, uh, and so on and so on. So one of the um, tools and tactics that we've been trying to do, and it's very slow, it's very painful, but trying to bring people together uh, to counter myths and stereotypes um, and, and to try to, to think about how to counter the way that the boss uses immigration laws uh, to, 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 to disunify uh, the working class. Um, so that's usually how we start, start part of this conversation. The second is, and I apologize, I have to use this term, but it's thinking about something called agricultural exceptionalism. And we've created the mythology of what we think our farming industry is. We think of the farming industry and, and we, we, it's, this propaganda is, you know, it's a multi-million dollar um, uh, advertising campaign where we you know, think of a small so-called family farm that feeds our communities, um, that everybody knows a local farmer, and we uh, invisibilize and erase the presence of racialized workers. We don't think of our agricultural industry as an export-oriented uh, maquila uh, entity. We don't think that most of the products and products that are made here in Canada is for export to the United States or to overseas markets. We don't think of the industry as a multi-billion dollar industry. In effect, we've created um, this idea of agricultural exceptionalism to create laws that uh, don't, that, well, there are no laws, right? So as a maquila, um, you know, to, to ensure that there's a competitive advantage or comparative advantage, that there are no rights to form unions, uh, there's no overtime pay, no holiday pay, um, no uh, minimum wage. And, you know, on days like today, uh, where it's sweltering hot, both in the greenhouses and the fields, is a perfect example that people are going to get sick and die, uh, maybe not today or tomorrow, but because of these working conditions here in, in Canada. So definitely it's a challenge. And uh, when we think about permanent status on arrival, you know, uh, when we started to think about this about 20 years ago, and I want to talk and unpack the difference between this versus pathways uh, to permanent status because they're very, very different terminologies. Um, and it's important as, as radicals and as labor activists to understand there's a difference between the two. And one is not what as working class people we should be calling for. So uh, prior to the arrival of uh, Caribbean migrant workers to Canada in the 1960s, 1966 to be if, um, exact, uh, Canada had experimented with different groups of people. Uh, we had uh, children coming from England, which was called the Bernardo children. Uh, we had, um, after World War II, uh, Dutch farmers coming to set up shop. We had Polish um, war veterans also after World War II. And each of these white Europeans were not tied to their employers and were able to uh, circulate freely. They had left free uh, labor and social mobility. And they became members of our, of our nation. Um, and they were able to, to, to build residency here. 
when we started to look at the importation of black workers first and then brown uh, Latinx workers, uh, we created uh, labor segmentation and labor restrictions that denied workers the ability to have free mobility. So very much the Season Agriculture Worker Program, is, which is one of the tentacles of the, the, um, of the Temporary Foreign Worker Program of Canada, uh, as, as a containment and control strategy to prevent the exertion of rights in Canada. Uh, so I think that's important. And, you know, previously we had people that came with permanent status. We valued agricultural work as skilled workers. Um, and once we saw the change, a correlation changed um, in, in the racialization of labor, we saw a correlation of de-skilling of labor as well, too. Uh, and this has also led to the justification of the exclusion of um, occupational health and safety laws, the right to organize, and the right to, uh, to employment standards. In terms of like the actual legality of unionization, like are they completely blocked? Like it is true again, like the history of union activism uh, uh, fighting against this. But like, is is there legitimately a legal impediment for them to do it? I think we've got to be um, clear here that, um, and I think there's been a lot of um, working class uh, peeps that that um, you know, and, and part of this discourse when we talk about the illegality. So in Ontario, I want to be clear. In Ontario, it's illegal for anyone to form a farm union, whether they are a resident, whether they are undocumented, whether they're a temporary foreign worker. We see these type of restrictions that occur across Canada. So in Quebec, for instance, you can form a union, but if you're a seasonal worker, you cannot. All right. So if you're here on a 12 month visa, yes but an eight or ninth month visa. And most workers come on, most seasoned agricultural workers and agricultural workers of the TFW program come as seasonal workers. So in Quebec, for instance, they would be excluded from protections. In British Columbia, um, you would have the ability to form a union. But what's also really important for us to understand is that the Wagner framework, uh, the traditional industrial organizing model of one workplace would not work in an agricultural sweat setting. So across North America, even in states or sorry, territories or states or provinces where you do have the right to organize um, in California, for instance, it's not even one percent. And that's because we have to think about other forms of organizing, such as a sectoral approach where everybody's covered in the entire industry, like in construction. That's a way to try to uplift and empower and to build um, workplace democracy. Uh, we can't base our forms of organizing on uh, the traditional industrial models. You also mentioned uh, the fact that the, a lot of these workers are underpaid. And I guess like why, what would some of the pushback from labor unions be to those workers then? Because having them unpaid, I would think, would hurt organized labor in many ways. Like, so do you have anything to say to that? But then also, like, is there any avenue or way for these workers to demand better wages given the current conditions? Or is it just that they're completely afraid to do so because of how exploited their labor is and how precarious it is? You know, there, there are tools that workers have. Um... And, you know, I, I have to also be clear that, you know, we're not saying that workers are vulnerable and don't have agency, right? Or that they're totally submissive and passive and docile. Um, employers attempt to create this mythology that that's, that's what occurs, but workers do engage in multiple forms of resistance. And during COVID, uh, pre-COVID, and during COVID and, and post-COVID, we've seen workers engaging wildcat strikes, knowing what the multiple risks are to engaging in wildcat strike. And actually, let me go back to the history of justice for migrant workers. Uh, so we formed about 21 years ago, 
21 years ago, 22 years ago. I don't remember. It was some way back in the day, man. And, um, and, and what happened was the reason why we started, I used to work for the UFW, United Farm Workers of America, which is a legendary union in California state. And um, we had an office here in Canada. And in 2001, there was a wildcat strike in Leamington, Ontario. And it was as a result of the wildcat strike that we saw this concern from, uh, from labor unions and community activists here in Ontario about the conditions of, of farm workers. So very much, um, you know, and I hate to be a Ontario snob, but I, I, I personally, I look to that one, um, one historic event of the wildcat strike of kind of awakening uh, this concern about migrant justice across Canada. And uh, it was kind of these one of these kind of important moments. And I, I want to also point that it's not that it's exceptional, that workers are trying to contest power uh, through multiple ways, whether it's uh, going slow or go slow, um, refusing works, engaging in sick outs. Um, there's a poignant scene in El Contrato and, you know, whether the intention was there or not. Uh, but when in, in, in El Contrato, there's a scene where the um, the liaison, which is the consulate officials that are supposed to represent the interests of workers, visit a farm in, in Leamington. And, um, you know, they're concerned because the workers are, are, you know, damaging property or causing disruptions. And whether the workers were intentionally trying to be resisting or not, uh, workers are finding multiple ways outside of the law um, to, to try to exert their rights. Now, there are significant consequences when that does happen. And to be clear, the law is no friend of workers, uh, but workers are trying to find multiple ways to try to exert their rights. Um, and, and I think it's also very clear uh, where there's a catch-up game, where I think many uh, people would try to focus on changing the law. The workers are not going to play catch-up. They're going to be undertaking actions to protect themselves. In terms of protecting themselves, th there is this... Uh, I guess, law that exists that uh, is the open work permit for vulnerable workers. This has been in effect now, I think, for four years. What was the purpose, uh, at least stated purpose by the government for the implementation of this policy? And do you mind explaining to uh, my listeners what, what this law is? So the open work permit for vulnerable workers is a time-limited, one-time-only permit that was uh, began to be issued by the federal government by Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada in 2019, in June. And it was a response to the organizing and um, resistance that was going on from migrant workers and advocates around the lack of protections for workers when they're dealing with these oppressive working and living conditions in their farms and in their workplaces. So the federal government stepped in as like the, the savior and said, this permit would allow you to leave your farm or your workplace and find some other um, employer that will treat you better if you're being mistreated. But what we're actually seeing happen is that's not the case at all. Um, workers are able to leave their employers, but at the end of the permit, when the permit ends, because it does come to an end, um, they're expected to go back into another closed permit with a new employer. So on one hand, the government is saying you have the ability to leave uh, a bad employer, but then you have to trust that your next employer is not also going to treat you the same way. And that doesn't make any sense because workers have um, significant mental health um, and trauma, uh, sorry, poor mental health and trauma from the experiences that they face and expecting them to go back into a new closed work permit when they're trying to leave an employer doesn't doesn't work and it's not 
a sustainable solution and it doesn't address the fundamental issues and concerns that workers and worker advocates have been raising with respect to the program in general. The problem isn't that there's a closed work permit or that there's an open work permit. It's the fact that workers are coming here for generations and are still temporary, despite their permanent, um, their permanent nature in Canada. Um, they're separated from their families. They are expected to come here and work under ridiculous conditions that no Canadian would ever want to work under. And then they're expected to be grateful for the chance to come back every single year or for this permit that is just allowing them to leave uh, one abusive employer to go somewhere else. And the permit itself has a number of issues just in terms of applying for it. Workers have talked about the fact that um, it's only accessible electronically, so you have to have access to a computer. Um, it's only available in English, so you need to know English and be able to access a computer. And then the biggest issue is that it requires a bunch of evidence to be able to prove that you've been abused or mistreated by your employer. And for all the reasons that Chris talked about before, that's really not um, accessible or reasonable to expect workers to be, for example, documenting all the different times that they're called racist or um, racist slurs or being treated with discrimination or um, being forced to work with pesticides without proper protective equipment or um, even asking other, being expected to ask other workers for letters of support or um, being expected to complain to the police or to Canada Border Services or to other um, enforcement officers when we know that enforcement officers are also an extension of the violence that's that's meted out against migrant workers. So the, the vulnerable open work permit is, it's purported to be a solution, but it's really not for workers and it doesn't address these huge concerns. Um, it just for a brief period of time allows workers to leave and then expects them to go back into the same conditions. I wonder as well, like, wouldn't if you are a worker who then goes through this process of filling out this or going through this procedure, wouldn't the other employers know that this is someone who's like an agitator or is like not going to uh, easily roll over and do what I want them to do? So do people find it hard, like once you go through the process to actually find another workplace that is going to take them? That is a major issue that uh, workers have also raised. They've come back actually after several months of um, trying to find work and saying that this employer heard that I, well, first of all, this employer saw that I have an open work permit and employers know how you would get an open work permit if you're a, a worker through the temporary foreign work program. You have to complain about your previous employer. And what employer wants to hire somebody that they know is a quote unquote troublemaker? And then even when it comes to trying to find a new closed work permit, employers don't want to hire somebody who has that history. So what we see is a lot of workers go out of status or they're, they have to take on other types of status that don't allow them to work, which makes them um, quote unquote breakers of Canada's immigration laws. So Canada's facilitating workers being quote unquote breakers of laws when they have the ability to create a system where workers can just be here with permanent status, have the ability to go back and see their families, have their families be here. Instead, they choose to um, control and force workers into these specific permits that they would not, they haven't done before and only began doing when this particular group of workers started coming to Canada. I have one last question about this uh, 
this policy, which is like, uh, why one year? Why was that the the set thing that like it just seems kind of arbitrary? But like, what was the? Did they give a justification for that? There is. We haven't seen any type of justification necessarily, and sometimes it's not even a full year. Sometimes they're only given six months. Um, sometimes you, we've seen a bit longer than a year that the workers are getting these permits. But again, that's another concern that workers have raised and that we've seen because you're going. these permits are going to individual visa officers at different offices across Ontario and across Canada. It's completely their discretion how they want to evaluate this application. Even though there is a quote unquote legal standard, the legal standard is not um, it's not really enforced at all. It's basically whether there's a reasonable ground to believe that a worker's experienced abuse and the reasonable ground to believe is at the discretion of the visa officer. So you see workers who have tons and tons of evidence be refused and then workers who don't have that much evidence be approved, which is great for that worker, but it's not great when you have, you're expecting workers to submit enough evidence without really talking about what that means and and what the risks and costs are to workers to be able to get that evidence. I think it's also important for us to understand, you know, going back to Tanita's point, that workers are tied to an employer. This is um, not a rhetoric, but this is indentured labor. And it's a perpetual system of indentured labor, as Cindy Hamamovich will call it. So, you know, we're saying that the most uh, exploited of the so-called exploited, you know, we're treating exceptionalism when we're saying that some people are more deserving uh, to have limited freedom than other people uh, if they don't have enough evidence or this arbitrariness. So very much it's trying to um, not, you know, trying to, to, to weaken this idea of the structural violence that exists as a result of tied work permits. I guess the, the recent protests that, that happened had to do with creating permanent residency for these workers and through a process of regularization. And some of the reporting I saw was saying that the liberals were planning to hold discussions about this in June. What was the nature of those discussions? Like, did, did they reveal that? And do we know any details about what or if they discussed um, we're not aware of what the details um, are occurring. We're not involved in the conversations with the feds at this moment. Uh, we've been in other conversations uh, with the feds about the uh, with ESDC and IRCC about the uh, exploitation components of the program. However, I think it's really important for us to remember. Um, I started this conversation talking about divide and rule, and the current framework of immigration reform is very much another uh, site of divide and rule where they're looking to provide some pathway system for some people, but not addressing the structural issues that, you know, undocumented communities or agricultural temporary foreign workers are facing. So, you know, if we think about, you know, the workplace of a migrant worker uh, as a system of, of a, a very exasperated, um, uh, unlevel, un uh, uneven power imbalance, um, we have to understand that power imbalance is just not simply in the workplace. It's also within the lobbying. And we know that there's been a lot of resistance from employer lobby groups to provide any freedom for, for migrant agriculture workers as well, too. So very much, I think a lot of the 
support um, for permanent status uh, is, 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 is concerningly falling into a divide and rule where some people and some groups of people seem to be more deserving than others. And unfortunately, we've seen this for many years. Uh, when there was push for reforms with living caregivers, we saw a lot of community advocates, you know, falling into the trap of saying that one community seems to be more deserving rather than understanding why all people you need to be uplifted uh, simultaneously. Um, finally, the other component, the controversial for some people, but, you know, I don't think we could, we give a shit, is, um, is that we're not only saying that current farm workers uh, should be uh, having the ability to live in, in Canada. Uh, previous workers who helped to build the foundation of our food system, workers who were injured, uh, workers who have been disbarred from the program, all these people, um, the hundreds of thousands, the tens of thousands of people whose labor seem to be good enough, but uh, their ability to engage in democratic processes don't seem to be, uh, according to the, our current framework here. Uh, we're saying that all these people should have the ability to, to, to live and work here in, in Canada. Um, and, and we recognize what their contributions and sacrifices have been. I mean, I personally support regularization, even for... Uh migrants generally not just laborers in this country but like i guess what in terms of migrant workers what what is the regularization process supposed to provide for them so like if if they become just permanent residents what i guess what does that mean as opposed to being citizens or what they are now so i want us to think about permanent status as not just simply the ability to live here as residents um, but once again, returning to this idea that our immigration laws are being used by employers to divide workers. So when we're thinking about status, it's a much more multifaceted component analysis about not just focusing on the federal government, but having the ability to collectively organize in our communities and workplaces for changes to benefit uh, working people. Right. And not just simply the one percent. So if people were able to organize without this idea being deported, um, you know, it would be an important way to try to place for workplace democracy, change our labor laws, change um, our housing laws. Uh, so I think this idea for status isn't just simply about a simple check mark about the immigrant levels, but a way to transform our society from some people who are are, are seen to be equal members or, uh, and others who are not. Uh, we, you know, we like to you know, consider ourselves uh, the, 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 the most human rights focused society in, in the world. We like to look down on um, on the Middle East, for instance, uh, which has a huge segment of uh, people that uh, that are employed as guest workers. Uh, but uh, we have to remember that Canada employs more guest workers and temporary foreign workers uh, than people who come in every year as permanent residents. So that should be uh, an alarm for everybody. And, um, you know, if we're concerned about building a society rather than, um, you know, uh, being captive to the captains of industry, then, you know, we should all heed the calls for changing so people could be inclusive and, and, and being equally members of this, as decision makers. It reminds me too, I, like I see a lot of the reporting on this whenever they take the employer's side of this, or, or not, not take the side, but like report on the employer's side of this, the employer always states something like, these workers feel like family to me, right? And there's this element too that strikes me as weird about that, which is like, if they're family, why can't they have the status to stay here for however long they need to stay here while having the rights that is provided by staying here? That's something that even the federal government brings up when we're demanding um, permanent status for workers. There was a recent stakeholder consultation that we took part in where 
we raised these concerns and the representative for ESDC said, well, we also hear from employers that they're afraid workers will just leave if they don't have, if they have permanent status instead of having the temporary permit, whether it's an open work permit or a closed work permit. And that's something we have to consider in these consultations for balancing both, <laughs> both perspectives. And that's just a really disgusting um, point of view to have. Like, why, why are you concerned about having um, control of a person to the point where you decide whether or not they can have status in a country just because you're afraid they're going to leave? Maybe they'll leave because of the conditions that they're being forced to work under. And also workers who are coming here don't just come without any experience at all. They have a lot of experience often in farming. So it doesn't make sense that they would just leave an area that they have expertise in um, once they get permanent status. And even if they did, that's absolutely their prerogative because they're human beings. And that one statement just betrayed a whole, like a whole mindset that doesn't consider uh, migrant workers, especially racialized migrant workers to be people who can make decisions for themselves. And you can't just control their decision making because you're concerned about your profit or the product that you're making it, it's straight up paternalism right yeah. I think a lot of union drives we see the same thing you know how dare the union come in it's going to break up my family so it's just a uh, it's a paternalistic tool it almost sounds like an admission of abuse too where it's like these workers if not for the current legal structure would just leave when it's like, why can't the flip side of that question be asked, which is like, how do I make my working conditions such that people want to stay rather than being forced to stay by some sort of like legal framework in this country? So I think there's two important things that we need to tease out, right? So we talked earlier with pathways versus uh, permanent status. We've seen a lot of employer um, and industry-based groups such as Mushrooms Canada call for a pathway system. And our concern with uh, with Mushrooms Canada and other industry uh, stakeholders, or I should say bosses, you know, forget the word stakeholders, but bosses, is that um, they want a pathway system where they are able to have input in who is able to um, immigrate, immigrate and who not. So this is another tool where they, um, you know, workers will be subjected to, you know, coercive conditions and exploitative conditions. And then um, at the end, if there is an end, uh, the employer will dictate and determine who has the ability to live here or not. And we don't think that that's correct. So there's got to be a lot of concern when, you know, progressive types and liberal minded people say that the pathway system is uh, is important or the way they should take it. Absolutely not. Um, migrant workers should not be seen as queue jumpers, uh, especially when they're uh, living and working under um indentured uh, conditions, first and foremost. Um, and, and second of all, you know, a lot of radicals also think that we should just abolish the program. And the challenge is this, if you abolish the program, you've got tens of thousands of people who have become economically dependent um, on, the, on this, these, these working, these work jobs as a result of globalization, colonialism. So if you don't address these other long-term questions, right, um, we can't just, you know, uh, on another form of paternalism, uh, just be like, let's abolish these programs as well, too. If I have one more question uh, that relates to some of the the earlier stuff that you were saying about the say I guess labor movement in general and the sort of like I guess quasi antagonistic or historically problematic interaction between uh, unions and these migrant workers and I guess like what is have things improved today or what are ways that we can improve that relationship because at least from my perspective I think 
that migrant work should be a union issue and unions should support migrant workers. So is there a way to bridge those gaps or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a couple of things here that unions are democratic institutions. And, you know, these are conversations that need to happen on the, um, the, you know, the shop floor. It needs to happen in union halls. It needs to happen on convention floors. And, you know, it's not just relying on the people on the top, but it's about trying to organize and, and to, to, to have workers in unionized facilities to think about multiple ways of, of uh, building solidarity and to not see that migrant workers as a threat. Um, part of our work is to continue to push um, push the labor movement both from the inside and the outside. So when when it's need, needed necessary to challenge and to uh, embarrass labor, uh, but also have amazing people work uh, within labor to push for changes uh, internally as well too. So it's not saying that you know unions are, are to always to be seen as this um, just a body that's that's um, hostile, right? It's like every other institution in our society. It's got. Uh, people that are very supportive and people who are not. So it's about trying to take every opportunity to push for changes and to show um, why it's beneficial, mutually beneficial to, to organize and to build base of support with migrant workers. Now for the government end of this equation, <laughs> what is what are things uh, that are happening now to sort of move the government on this issue? It's clear that obviously the employer side of this has a lot of lobbying power, uh, you know, it's very nice that the liberals say they're going to discuss this, but like what there were these protests that were happening. Are there going to be further protests or what are there what other things can people do to help promote this idea of status and regular regularization? We're constantly trying to push back um, against federal action or inaction. Um, we are not focused on appeasing or meeting with government in private meetings or um, discussing these things as a negotiation. We're more concerned with um, gathering public support, especially among migrant workers, and um, hearing from them and their perspectives and where they want things to go. And the recent rally that we held in Windsor was an example of that. The MP's office that we held the rally in front of was closed that day. And that's something that was um, brought up to us in when we were speaking with press about, about how and why and, and yes, why we were why we were doing the rally at that time when the MP's office was closed. And that was because we wanted to join with community and bring community allies together to raise public awareness about these concerns so that it could be a collective push for change instead of um, begging and pleading with the government for scraps um, when we know that the federal government is not going to move until they have to move. And so that's why we're focused on gathering community and public support for, um, for our, our goals and our ambitions. Uh, we're planning another action uh, on June 30, July 30th, July 30th in London, Ontario, and hopefully a subsequent action uh, in August. Uh, Possibly our target is going to be Hamilton. Um, so London, Ontario is also going to be celebrating. We had a um, massive, significant and historical win uh, with respect to the racial profiling racist and racialized policing of migrant farm workers 
Um, it was a case stemming from the Ontario Provincial Police and their coercion with uh, and with the, the with an employer, several employers, to collect the DNA samples of about 96 migrant farm workers uh, just outside of Tilsonburg, Ontario. So recently, we had the DNA destroyed. Uh, there's a settlement that came across, and this is also out of a human rights victory uh, that named the actions of the police as racist and, uh, in effect, uh, illegal. Uh, and we're going to use this opportunity to build, not only to talk about racist policing, but the necessity for building a, a larger working class uh, unified movement and addressing the issue of permanent status on arrival. I guess, like, to sum up, like, uh, tell tell my audience about uh, Justice for Migrant Workers and, like, some of the other work that you do and where they can uh, find your work. So I am a staff lawyer with the Migrant Farm Worker Clinic, which is a project of Justice for Migrant Workers and the University of Windsor Faculty of Law. So our main goals are around organizing and um, building a movement, a multiracial, multiracial movement with migrant farm workers. But in order to do that, um, sometimes we do engage in legal strategies. So um, the legal clinic supports workers um, and works with workers who, for example, need to apply for the open work permit if they are um, in a workplace where they have been mistreated and abused and they need to leave. And um, workers who, who get involved with us through their legal work also tend to stay involved with our organizing work, whether it's attending the workshops that we hold with workers to share information about um, their rights and strategies to push for change in their workplaces. We also do outreach in the communities um, where migrant workers are living, for example, in Leamington, um, in Simcoe, Tilsonburg, and meet with workers on the ground like when they're, when they're in town and uh, meeting them where they're at. And also just um, hearing from workers, sharing information, um, sharing workers' information with and allowing workers to meet one another is um, some of the key work that we do because um, again, it's it's worker-led. It's well, it's where we want workers to uh, be able to express their their own opinions about how they feel about their working conditions and and what changes they want to see and um, standing in solidarity with workers to um, push for those changes. Yeah, um, Tanita um, has undertaken a lot of our social media work. So we have a link tree, which we can share. Uh, we've got uh, Twitter at JFromW, uh, Instagram at Harvesting Freedom. Um, we've got a Facebook account, Facebook page, and Facebook group. So you could find us on multiple social media uh, um, components. And uh, we're always willing to come to different communities to speak about the issues with, uh, with union members. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for talking with me. Uh, it was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you Thanks for having us. Thanks again to Tanita Doma and Chris Ramsarup of Justice for Migrant Workers. You can find all the links to their website and social media accounts in the show notes of this episode. Lastly, if you enjoy this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash laborintensive. If you become a member, you can have access to the patron-only podcast that I do with Eric Wickham called Bad Books by Bad People. You might know Eric from being a co-host of Big Shiny Takes, which is also a part of the Harbinger Media Network. I just released the July episode, which is Chapter 7 of Shakedown by Ezra Levant. Next month, we will be releasing our final episode for that book, so stay 
tuned. If that interests you, go check it out, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community of progressive podcasts. Visit their website at harbingermedianetwork.com to listen to other incredible left-leaning podcasts. Thanks as well to Dan Van Winden, who produced the music for this podcast. If you want to follow Labor Intensive on social media, find links to our social media accounts in the show notes of this episode. 